You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today's scripture comes from Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Before we jump into this text, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering as your people to be reminded of not just who you are, but of what your son has done on our behalf, that we've been cleansed from our sins, that you have, like the songs that we sang this morning, Lord, that you have shined into the darkness of our lives and you bring healing and you bring hope. And so I pray for us this morning as we come to your word, we know that this word is the word of life, that here you teach us and you show us your design, and your redemption. And so I pray that you would give us hearts to receive the truths here, and that we might leave here with a different vision, not just of who you are, a greater and deeper vision of you, but a greater and deeper vision of the life that you've called us to, and how it's infused with meaning, regardless of our circumstances. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, 2004... Uh, some of you might remember the story, American Airlines was in the news because kind of this incident took place on one of their flights. It wasn't terrorism, um, but what had happened was is one of the pilots on that flight, he had gone on a mission trip and just returned from a mission trip, and the trip totally changed his life. He encountered Jesus and just was completely on fire for the Lord. And so on his first flight back from this trip, his pre-flight announcements he asked all the Christians on board the plane to raise their hands. And then he suggested that during the flight, the other passengers talk to those people about their faith. He also told the passengers he'd be happy to talk to anyone who had questions about Jesus. Well, you can imagine that this announcement really freaked a number of the people out on the plane, and understandably so. I mean, imagine you, the, the pilot on your airplane, encouraging you to be prepared to meet Jesus as your plane starts taking off. Right? People started freaking out. I share that story because I've always found it so funny, but it, it illustrates well, I think, this tension that many Christians feel of how does our faith intersect with our work? How do these things go together? How do we take what we believe and integrate it into what we do? We're in the series entitled Sacred, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for our world and for our lives. And today, we're continuing a conversation that Pastor Jonathan talked about last week, started last week, on work. What does God's Word have to say about our work? If you work for 40 hours a week for 50 years, that's 100,000 hours of your life devoted to work. And how do those 100,000 hours, which are going to be the majority of your waking life, 
how do they actually connect and intersect with faith in Jesus? Now, for some of us, it's, it's pretty easy. Like, for me, I'm a pastor. It, it's a central part of what I do here. And if you're in ministry or a missionary, or maybe even if you work in a crisis pregnancy center, or uh, you work with foster children or uh, social work, you can kind of make some connections. But what about other jobs? What about real estate? What if you're a mechanic? If you're in IT? or you're a chef, or you're a plumber, or you're a professor, or you're in financial advising. How does that intersect with your faith in Jesus? And I I typically hear a couple of answers, and and I think they're all right. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with them, but oftentimes people say, well, my faith in Jesus shapes how I do my work. I do my work with excellence, you know, I, I make sure I don't cut corners, I offer good product and good service for a fair price. So it informs the ethics of our work, which is good. Others would say, <clears throat> my faith shapes, like I look at my job as an opportunity to do evangelism. It's where I can bear witness to my faith in Jesus, which again, I think is good and true. And then others will say, well, I work so that I can make money and then I leverage that money for the good of the gospel and the church or in other ministries, which again, all of these things are totally true and good and I'm grateful for them. But I think they're all missing something because oftentimes the way Christians talk about their work and how their faith intersects with the work, the one thing it misses is the actual work. Like it's not just that work is an opportunity for other things, but it's, it's the actual what you do with your mind and your hands. It's the 40, 50, 60 hours a week that you're devoting the best to yourself to. And so what happens is some people, they feel like, well, my job's not all that important or it's not as important as, you know, what the ministry people do. Other people, other Christians I know love their jobs, but they don't even know how to talk about that. Like, is it weird that I love my job? Does that mean that I love the world? What is, is this a sin? Am Am I doing something wrong? And what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that at creation, God instituted three fundamental human institutions. The first is Sabbath, which we talked about a few weeks ago. The second is marriage, which we're talking about next week. And then the third, it's work. It's work. And so today we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, and then we're going to take this and go through the rest of the Bible fairly quickly and look at and see, like, what, what is the story God has for our work? How does your job fit into the greater story of God's work? We're going to look at this text under three headings, the gift of work, the grind of work, and then how the gospel of Jesus is actually good news for our work. So the gift, the grind, and the good news for our work. Starting with the gift, we see the blueprint of God's design for work in verse 15, which Lindsay just read, where we're told that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is the foundational text that God creates the world and then he creates the Garden of Eden. But then look at what he does. He entrusts the care of it and the cultivation of it to Adam and Eve, to humanity. God's design, this tells us something very fundamental about work. God's design for our work, all of our work, is that it would be a continuation of his work. 
our work is a continuation of his work. This is what we saw back in chapter one, where we're after God creates the world and everything in it, God creates humanity, and it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. God's saying, I, I created it, and now I want you to fill it with your offspring, fill the earth and subdue it, and I want you to rule over the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The word subdue there is such an interesting word. What does it mean to subdue something? Subdue means to bring under control. What that means is that in Genesis 1 and 2, creation was very good, but it wasn't finished. It was bursting with a whole bunch of potential and a whole bunch of resources and opportunity, but it wasn't finished. God entrusted all of the potential of the earth in Genesis 1 he entrusted that potential to humanity, to us, to go and to cultivate it. Many speculate this is why when God looked on the world the end of day six and declared it's very good, it's why he didn't say it's perfect, because it wasn't perfect. There was a whole lot of cultivating left to be done by humanity. It's, it's almost as if, thinking of it like this, it's like in Genesis 1 and 2, God gives a recipe and he gives all of the ingredients and then he says, go have fun and go make a tremendous meal. And God's design is that all of our work would be a continuation of his work, regardless of what your job is. Now that might be hard for you to connect the dots there. So we got to ask, what was God's work that began in creation? What was the work God did? Well, in Genesis verse Chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that the earth, or sorry, verse 2, that we're told that the earth was formless and void and that it was covered in darkness. And then what did God do? He spoke. And in his speaking, he brought order out of the chaos. He brought light into the darkness. Put another way, he rearranged the raw materials of creation to create the world so that people would flourish. He took the raw stuff and he brought order and beauty to it so that people would flourish. Then God calls Adam and Eve. And what's the work that God entrusts to Adam and Eve? To be gardeners. Well, what is gardening? Gardening is creatively rearranging and re reordering the raw materials of creation in such a way as to bring about order, beauty, and the goods necessary for human flourishing, fruits, vegetables, flower, gardening, really it's a prototype of all of humanity's work, and all of our work is a form of gardening. Now you might think, uh, how does this apply? Well, let's start teasing this out. If the work God did is he brought order out of disorder, and he cultivated raw things or even broken things or things in the darkness, and he brought them into light for the flourishing of others, think about the work that we do. What is farming? What is construction? What is architecture? What is medicine? It's taking raw material things, be it plants, soil, stones, wood, even fungus, and creatively rearranging and reordering them in such a way to produce crops and buildings and penicillin, medicine. These things all serve to promote flourishing 
on human, on earth for humanity. I mean, think about it. Food is essential. Homes are essential. Medicine is essential. This is a continuation of God's work. And you might say, well, sure, like gardening and you know, farming, that's an easy one. But what about other things like teaching, education maybe, or banking, or the arts? Well, teachers, you know this. If, if our work is a continuation of God's work, and God's work was taking the raw, rough, ragged edges and smoothing them out and making them into something beautiful, isn't that what a teacher does? <laughs> You're working with raw talent, raw kids, rough around the edges, not fully developed, and you're working to reorder, develop, and expand their thinking to make them strong, beautiful people. What about banking, investment bankers, or venture capitalists? How does that fit? Well, you, you cultivate raw ideas and people to create new products, new jobs, and new wealth. What about music? What is music? Music's taking raw sounds and rearranging them in such a way that something beautiful emerges. And for some reason, some mysterious reason, we need music for a flourishing life. Could you imagine a life without music? And the greatest composers, the greatest musicians, they're able to just kind of see the raw notes and they're like, if we put this here and then this here and then this here, it's really beautiful. And we all agree, we're like, that is, you know, can pieces of music can bring you to tears. Why? We don't know. None of us know why it does, but it does. If you're an author, you write stories, you're taking the raw material of human experiencing it, human experience, and you're shaping it into a coherent story. And stories are the way in which we understand our lives and we make sense of the world. I hope you're seeing all of our work All of our work is a continuation of God's work. All of our work. Whatever it is. And the implications for this, they're massive. Number one, work, it's not a punishment for sin. This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is the paradise of Eden. If you were to ask most Americans describe paradise, they would say beach, ocean, Great food, I don't think most people would say work. And yet here we see that work is a part of the paradise of Eden. We're also told in Isaiah 2, we get these hints that in the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is going to bring, we're going to work there too. Because we're going to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because we're going to work. All work is a gift. And all work has dignity and value. All work, even work that you don't get paid for, like cleaning your house. You know, (laughs) if your home is a wreck and, and someone doesn't move across the face of that chaos and darkness and void, like what's gonna happen? Well, you're gonna end up on a TV show on A and E (laughs) and you'll probably die from it, right? Like the hygiene will probably kill you. Like, all work has dignity and value. Ministry, sure. You know, something I never noticed until this week, when you think about, when I think about my job as a pastor and as a preacher, 
A huge part of my job is to hold forth the word, to hold forth Christ, to convict of sin and righteousness. And we're told in John 16 that the work of the Spirit is to convict people of their sin and their righteousness, or convict people of sin and righteousness. That's work that I do. But what's interesting is we see here in Genesis 1 that that same Spirit does this work of bringing order out of chaos for the sake of human flourishing. All work has dignity and value. There's not varsity and JV. You know, years ago, I was talking with a man in the first church I was a pastor at. He was really struggling with his job. And he came up to me and he said, I just want to do something like it's really meaningful, like what you do. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I drill holes in concrete all day. I said, well, and he's like, I just, I don't want to do that. I want to do something that really has purpose and and I said, well, why do you drill holes in concrete? And he's like, so they can run plumbing into buildings, uh, new buildings, new construction. And I'm like, do you think indoor plumbing is meaningless? Do you think this has no value? You know how hard it would be to do my job if we didn't have plumbing on the premises here right now? Like all work has value. But we fail to make the connection a lot of the time. We fail to see how does what I do actually contribute to the cultivation of the world and to the flourishing of humanity. But if you actually sit and think about it for a little bit, you can make the connections. We've just bought into this sacred-secular divide, which is a lie and a myth that parts of the world really belong to God and he cares about, and the rest of it he doesn't care about. When Genesis 1 and 2 tells us he cares about the whole thing because he created the whole thing, and the very heart of redemption is he's going to redeem the whole thing. And so all of our work matters. And it's a gift to be received. All has dignity and value. That's the gift. Now, if work is a gift, and really it's a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a human being, then why does work so often feel like a curse? And the answer is because Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3. Because God told Adam in verse 15, chapter 2, he put him in the garden. He said, I want you to work this and I want you to take care of it. But then the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's all yours, God says. All of it, except you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And I'm sure we could, we could spend weeks talking about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're not going to get lost there. What I want you to see is God said, it's all yours. Continue the work that I've done. I've just given you one, one stipulation, one guardrail, so to speak. Don't touch that tree. And in Genesis 3, we know that they ate from the tree which God told them not to eat. But what I want you to see is sin, it wasn't just eating the fruit. What happened at the fall was Adam and Eve, instead of participating with God in the care and cultivation of his creation, they tried to replace him. They tried to say, thank you for all you've given us. This is great. It's a great fixer-upper. We're going to do wonders with it, but we want to do it on our own. We want to do it separate from you. We know you said this. We don't care. We're going to do this. Sin. It's not just bad things we do. It's a rejection of God's design for the world and for us. 
And as a result of sin, their sin, sin has entered into God's creation and it's wreaked havoc on everything, including our work. And two ways in particular that I want to talk about that make work a grind. The first is work became very difficult. In response to their rebellion, God cursed the ground. He cursed the ground, made the ground, made it so that the ground would start fighting back at humanity. Thorns and thistles found their way into the garden, and tasks that were once done with delight are now only done by the sweat of our brow and the breaking of our backs. This cursing of the ground, these thistles and thorns, this is why work is often so hard. It's, you know, there are literal thistles and thorns. I mean, if you've ever tried to take uh, some landscaping in front of your house, maybe you bought a fixer-upper and you're like, we're going to get this thing looking good. You know how hard it is to get rid of certain weeds? When you really, you know, if you've got it great, it's fine. You just throw some mulch and you're like, man, this is a good day's work. If you don't have that, if you've got Bermuda grass growing there, good Lord. You're going to spend years fighting the ground. But we see these thistles and thorns in so many places. We see it when computers crash and printers jam or bolts, they rust on and they're impossible to break off. Students who disrupt class, people who steal, cheat, and lie and force us to lock our doors and have things like loss prevention. I mean, this is this fall, this cursing of the ground, it's the root of Murphy's Law. You know, everything is harder than it should be, takes longer than it should, and it costs more than it should. It's because the ground is cursed. And work has become exceedingly difficult. It's frustrating and it's exhausting. That doesn't mean it's not good, though. Being able to hold those two things together, I think, is a hard thing for many Christians. Work is really hard because of the cursing of the ground, but it's still good. The second thing, second way sin has distorted our work. You know, if work is participating with God in the care and cultivation of cre- his creation, what happens when we turn from him and no, stop participating with him? Well, we become untethered, right? And our work, instead of it being something we're doing in concert with him, becomes something we do on our own. We lose God's vision for our work, and we're no longer working for the sake of glorifying God or doing good in the world. Instead, work becomes something that we do for ourselves, and it's all about me. It's all about what I do. It's all about my identity. I think because of the fall, work has become one of, if not the primary ways in which we build our identities. We see this in the scriptures, Genesis uh, 11, people built a tower in Babel. Do you remember why? Because they wanted to make a name for themselves. And in the same way, many people take their work, which is a good thing and really important, but they make it the most important thing. And it becomes the thing around which they're alive revolves and their relationships revolve. And you know these people because they overwork, they never rest, they never slow down, they keep climbing the ladder. 
And they, they basically, what they've done is they've taken work, which is a gift, and they've turned it into a god. And they'll lay whatever they need to down on that altar. They'll lay their marriage down on the altar of success. They'll lay their kids down on the altar of success. They'll lay their health down on the altar of success. I mean, it's cats in the cradle. How many songs, how many movies, how many stories have we seen this? The most important things in life are neglected all because someone is so wrapped up in their work. What leads us to do that? Instead of finding our identity as people created in the image of God, we feel like we need to create our own identity. And so a lot of people overwork. A lot of people, you know, they get to 60 or 70. I was talking to a man who's pushed his late 50s, early 60s, really, really successful. I'm like, if you could go back, what would you change? He's like, I just wouldn't have worked so hard. I'm like, but look what it did. Like, look at the life you built. He's like, I know, but there are so many things that I'll never get back. So many moments with my kids, dates with my wife. What's driving there? And there can be other things. Well, I want to provide, sure, or I'm afraid of going broke, or I want to prove my dad wrong. I thought I was going to be, like, there's a lot of things that can go into it. But work, which is a gift, to be received as a gift, becomes a source of identity. And the minute we take something like that, which is a good thing, and we make it the very heart of our identity, really weird stuff happens. We'll overwork, or some people will see that, and they're like, I'm not going to do that at all. They don't work at all. Others hate their jobs. Why? Because they feel the work is beneath them. And it's really the same principle. They'll stew in bitterness because they don't have the job they feel they deserve. They feel passed over. These people oftentimes aren't very good at their jobs. They're not very enjoyable to work with because they're filled with so much bitterness. I'll tell you, though, when work stops being this gift and becomes central to our identity, it always leads to a distorted life. You know, and I want to nuance this well because of course our work will contribute to our identity. Like, I am a pastor. If you ask me, what do I do? I'm a pastor. But that's not all I am. That's not the sum of who I am. The day will likely come where I will not be a pastor anymore, but I will still be a husband, a father, and a son of God. What's your job? What do you do? Why do you think so many marriages start to crumble once the kids leave the home. Well, if your job was a stay-at-home mom, that was what your, your whole life revolved around. And don't get me wrong, it kind of does, but your identity is not solely there. What happens when the kids leave? Like we can so over-identify with our work, and this is why when people lose their jobs or they get demoted or they get passed over, their lives come crashing down around them. Because their work, which is a good thing and a gift, but it's not the most important thing, they've elevated it to that place, and they don't know what to do. You know you're banking way too much of your identity in your work when you can never lay it down? Or if you're always bitter about it, you're always thinking about it? It's a gift. It's a good gift. But it's not the very center of who you are. Work is a gift, Work is a grind, 
And this is where we get to how the gospel of Jesus is truly good news for our work. Sometimes, you know, early on as a Christian, when I would read Genesis 3, like, so they sin and God curses the ground? Like, that seems kind of cruel. Why would God do that to humanity? He's making their life harder. Well, it's not cruel. What, what God could have done in Genesis 3 at the fall is he could have just said, to hell with you all, literally. Just done. I laid the blueprint and the plan. You didn't obey. Instead, God made our work really, really hard. Why? To slow us down. <laughs> To remind us that if this is the very center of our life, it's going to be a miserable existence because work is so hard. God cursed the ground, but he didn't curse us, at least not in the sense that many people think. Instead, God stepped into our world and he took the sin of this world upon himself on the cross so that we might be redeemed, but also so that the goodness of this world might one day be restored. And he endured the cross so that humanity, which became alienated when they said, we don't want to do it like you told us to, so that we might be reconciled to God, that our relationship with God might be healed, that we could become tethered to him once again. We might find our identity in him, not just as his creatures, but as his sons and daughters. So many people in this world, they still live at, at war with God, where they want to deny he exists. They want to deny that all of the work that they put their hands to comes from him, and it's a gift from him. And they're stressed, and they're worn out, and they're anxious. And yet God broke into the world. And he said, who you are is not ultimately about your work. Who you are is you are my creation and I want you to be my son and my daughter. And when you enter into that relationship with the living God, it changes everything. To the degree that you're living into your sonship or daughtership of the living God is the degree to which you can have peace and find fulfillment with your work, whatever it is. Why? Because it's no longer the center anymore. It's no longer the very heart of who you are. You see, Practically, there are many, many people who fill the pews and the chairs and churches that say they worship the living God, but their identity is all wrapped up in their job. And if it comes to job or God, oftentimes job's going to win out. If you ask them, hey, why don't you ever take a break? When's the last time you, you got a half a day of silence and solitude to just be with God? They'll laugh and say, that can never happen. I don't have that kind of space in my life. What does that reveal about us? But when you know you're loved by God, you can say, I did my best, and now I'm laying it down for a time. I'll pick it back up. It'll all still be there tomorrow. But this isn't the heart of who I am. I recognize that many people here are unhappy with their work, something like 60 or 70% of Americans, I think, don't really like their jobs. I get it. I've had bad jobs before. My first job was at Burger King, okay? I was 15 years old. Like, I've had jobs that I didn't particularly enjoy. I know that. But I think a lot of times we're unhappy with our work, not just because the job is hard, but it's because of this identity piece. 
And if you were part of my generation or younger, man, we were sold a bill of goods when it comes to work, weren't we? It's like they would start talking to you in elementary school. What do you want to be when you grow up? And they would like, you know, paint these pictures. For some reason, Baker was always on there. Like this world is filled with bakers. That's not even really an option, you know, unless you're, you know, a very, very high class one or you want to work in a factory somewhere. Or astronaut. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous this is? Do you want to be an astronaut when you grow up? In a society of 300 million people, seven of which get to be astronauts. <laughs> but it was a viable option put down. Like, yeah, well, one more info on this one. We were like, we were, we were sold this bill of goods. Like, you, you could be this thing or this thing. And movie gods, rock stars. And to find out we've become bankers or baristas or mechanics or teachers might feel like a letdown. And man, if you were raised in the church, on top of that, not only could you be whatever you wanted in the world, but you were also going to be a world changer for Jesus. And you're going to do all of these things. And maybe you're going to be a missionary to the farthest corners of the world. And praise God for those missionaries. But you know how many people I've counseled in my office here who were raised and told, this is who you're going to be, and instead they find out that they're a substitute teacher at this point in their life, and they're miserable because they thought, this is who I've got to be. This is the identity that I have to build. And the reality is that the good news of the gospel means our identity is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. We're children of God. We didn't earn it. We received it, and we're dearly loved by him, and he has a beautiful script for us, no matter how ordinary it might seem. And this is why I think Christians, sometimes they can be the worst employees, but they have the raw materials to be the best, because we can show up and do our work well, but we know it doesn't define us. If I could challenge you a bit, no matter where you are, no matter what your job is, no work is beneath you. And I can say that with confidence because our God is a God who put his hands in the dirt and Jesus swung a hammer for 20 years. And so whatever work is before you right now, what would it look like to show up well? You know, this, this verse... Never heard this one quoted when I was younger in the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Anyone as in youth ministry, anyone ever hear a youth pastor get up and preach a sermon on this one? Hey, make it your ambition. Strive with all you have in you. He says, this translation is mind your own business. Really what it means, tend to the work that's before you. Tend to your own affairs and work with your hands. Do the work that's before you, whether you get paid for it or not, whether you love it or not. If you're a teacher, a painter, a barista, a banker, a mechanic, manager, whatever it is, you're participating with God and the care and cultivation of his creation. He's entrusted that work to you right now. And so do it well. Oftentimes the answer is, what does it mean to be a Christian in this vocation? The answer is, do it well. 
be good at your job. I heard Tim Keller, someone said, what does it mean to be a Christian pilot? And his response was great. He said, it means you land the plane. <laughs> like you land the, so the cargo and the people are there and so that you can, you can use the plane again. What does it mean to be a Christian mechanic? Do your job well. A lot of lives depend upon you not cutting corners. What about a barista? Make the best pour over you can to help jumpstart someone's day. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I'm not squashing healthy ambition. Like, there, there's nothing wrong with desire. You might hate your job and you might have desires to do something else. Praise God. God might be leading you to that. Go and pursue that. What I'm saying is, your life is happening now. And so go and pursue whatever you want to pursue, but your life is happening right now. And if you're living in the future, well, once I get here, then I'm going to be happy. That's the greatest lie that we believe as human beings. And I also want to say, if you're looking to find the ideal job, you're going to be looking until you die or until Jesus comes back. Because no jobs are ideal. There are no perfect jobs. There is no perfect work. And if there was and you showed up there, you'd ruin it for everyone. <laughs> And so we've got to lose the idealism. The work's fallen. The ground's cursed. Of course, parts of your job you're going to hate. Of course, there's going to be 10, 20, 30% that you just don't like. I mean, if it's 80 or 90% and you have an option to go do something else, I encourage you to do it. Life's too short to work a job you hate if you have an option. If you don't have an option, then show up and do your job well and pray that the Lord would open more doors for you. By the grace of God, the grace of God, the good news of the gospel means we can do our work because we know it doesn't define us. What defines us is the fact that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And as we move to communion, this is a great, a great gift, a great reminder for us of who we are. The night before... Jesus was crucified. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it with his disciples. And he said, this is my body that's being broken for you. It's broken for our sins, broken for our rebellion. And then he said, this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant, the new work that I'm doing, the cup of my blood that's being shed for you. And he encouraged his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. So this has taken different shapes throughout the history of the church. During the pandemic, we've got those little containers. And if you don't have one, there's baskets on the side. But if you've put your faith in Christ, we encourage you, you take a piece of the bread and you can dip it into the wine or you can drink the wine, the juice, to be reminded that Jesus Christ gave his body and blood to redeem you, to make you a daughter or a son of the living God. And that's who you are. When you live into that and live out of that, you can show up and do wonderful, great work because you know your work doesn't define you. You can be snubbed and overlooked. You can get over it because it's not the most important thing to you. But you can be faithful and show up where God has you because you know he's good and he cares for you. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in this. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life to save you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, 
lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.